Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience in advance of a key meeting at the United Nations known as the Food Systems Summit. I moderate a discussion in which panelists explore the links between food systems and climate change, specifically how the Food Systems Summit can harness action on climate change and how the incoming major international climate meeting in Glasgow this November, known as COP26, can inspire action on food systems. This episode is produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. It kicks off with introductory remarks by Gernot Laganda, Chief of Climate and Disaster Risk Reduction Programs at the World Food Program, followed by Peter Lederach, Principal Climate Scientist with CGIAR and the World Food Program. I then moderate a panel discussion followed by audience questions. Finally, Christine Schneeberger, Deputy Head of Global Cooperation at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, offers concluding remarks. Enjoy. This is a timely conversation coming a little more than a week before the UN Food Systems Summit and uh, several weeks ahead of COP26 in Glasgow. And now here is Gernot Laganda, Chief of Climate and Disaster Risk Reduction Programs at the World Food Program. Dear colleagues from around the world, a very warm welcome to this long-awaited conversation on the links between climate action and food systems transformation. My name is Gernot Laganda. I'm leading the Climate and Disaster Risk Reduction Programs at the United Nations World Food Program. Like many of you, I've been following the buildup to two of the biggest events that are taking place at the UN this year, the UN Food Systems Summit and the 26th Conference of Parties to the UN Climate Convention. And like many of you, I'm asking myself what these summits are going to do differently to help us tackle some of the biggest, most complex and most daunting problems the world is facing. In WFP, we get reminded each day what happens when food systems break down. This is when people go hungry. And when humanitarian assistance is often the only remaining option for people to feed themselves and their families. And when we look at our global hunger map this year, then we notice countries and regions flashing in deep dark red, where in the past we weren't used to such breakdowns. This shows that by and large, food systems are quite vulnerable to changes in climate and also to growing social and economic inequalities. And at the same time, they contribute a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, which then boomerang into the climate extremes that lead to supply chain disruptions, food price hikes, hunger, and malnutrition. Both big conversations this year, the Food Systems Summit and COP26, are conversations about systems rather than sectors. And this in itself is of great importance, given that we live in an interconnected world that doesn't lend itself very well to change when we cannot find ways to step back from our own disciplines, countries, sectors, or institutions. Without thinking in systems, we cannot understand whether we are more part of the problem or more part of the solution to our broken food systems and our overheating climate. On that very note, the Food Systems Summit on the 23rd of September has made a purposeful decision to keep the term systems in its center, even though it may not be very intuitive for many people to do so. 
It isn't the World Agriculture Summit or the World Food Summit. By associating the conversation with a system rather than a sector, this conversation acknowledges the globalized and wide-ranging impacts we generate by producing, processing, transporting, and consuming food the way we do. And it also recognizes a growing set of risks that affect our food supply chains. On the other side of the Food System Summit, and only a few weeks later, the international community will be coming together in Glasgow to grapple with an accelerating climate crisis. More than 190 countries will be around the table with different plans, approaches, and expectations to keep warming to under 1.5 degrees centigrade and adapt to the growing impacts of climate change, from heat waves and wildfires to floods, storms, and devastating droughts. But it's not only the extreme events that have these countries worried. Lower-level climatic variations and stresses also play a big role, especially for food systems. Untimely rainfall, changing seasons, growing salinity in soils and groundwater, shifts in pest infestations and diseases, loss of biodiversity and heat stress in crops and livestock, these are all factors that influence food production, access and availability. So when we look a little bit more closely at the systems that bring food to our tables and the systems that govern human interaction with the climate, then it is easy to see how extremely relevant these two are to each other. Food systems have the potential to aggravate global warming or to reduce it. And climate action can make our food systems more sustainable and resilient or miss out on an extremely effective level of change. This is why we are coming together today with a coalition of other like-minded platforms, governments and institutions to encourage a stronger linkage between the Food System Summit and COP26. We are convinced that food systems transformation, if done right, can accelerate climate action. And conversely, Climate action can enable and sometimes even trigger food systems transformation. We believe that the various partners and platforms represented here today, some of which are not generally associated with the food systems dialogue, have a lot to offer when it comes to the adaptation and the de-risking of food systems in a changing climate. And in the first stage of this relay, I'm now going to hand over to my colleague Peter Lederach, who embodies the food system and climate interface like nobody else I know. Peter is a climate scientist working for the consultative group on international agricultural research. He's an expert on food systems and with support from Switzerland seconded to the WFP climate team. Peter will be teeing us off with a baseline framing on how food systems and climate action interrelate and then hand over to Mark Goldberg for the panel conversation. With this, I wish you an inspiring and energizing event and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Peter, over to you, please. Thank you so much, Kernot, for the kind introduction. So dear audience, we have a very interesting agenda for you today. So I'm gonna continue setting the scene for the next uh, 10 minutes. Then we're gonna have a high level panel discussing a uh, within a, a moderated panel discussion. Um, we have Mark Goldberg from Global Dispatches Podcast who's gonna moderate the discussion. The five um, panelists are inspiring leaders from the intersection of food systems and climate change, as already mentioned by, by Gernot. We also have worked in this uh, group of panelists and, and colleagues on a position paper. The position paper will be launched uh, on the 20th of September, just before the Food Systems Summit. It will discuss the same topics that we are discussing uh, today. So, so let me start. The today's discussion is about climate action to transform food systems and the importance of food systems to tackle the climate crisis. The climate crisis is here and now. This year was another 
unprecedented year, like all the years in in the past uh, 10 or so years. So we had, for the first time, rain in Greenland. We had floods all over Europe. We had fires in Australia, Central Asia, Northern America, and a lot of other extreme events. We also have to recognize that a lot of those extreme events happen in Africa, many more Africa or, and in the southern countries, sometimes even more than, than in the north, but they're very much underrepresented. A uh, paper that came last week or an opinion piece that came out last week in the Independent discussed the, that extremes are very much underreported in Africa compared to the north. So this has to change. So the message is the climate crisis is now and here. Of course, this is all going to be become, unfortunately, even worse by 2030 and 2050. But the climate change, climate crisis has arrived to our doorsteps. So then what are food systems? I like very much the, the two minutes introduction video of Agnes Kalibata, the special envoy for the Food Systems Summit. She says, Food is more than what we eat. Food is water. Food is land. Food is our culture. Food is labor. Food is technologies. It is economies and policies. Food is everything. And food system, systems are connecting all those different dimensions. Also, we have to know that there's not, not one food systems. There's many food systems. If you think of a smallholder farmer in Africa, her food system is very different to a person that lives in a mega city in Asia, or maybe a vegan or a vegetarian. So food systems, there are many food systems and they vary greatly. The fortunate among us can decide, decide three times a day what we want to eat and how our food systems look like. So then what, what are the impacts of food systems on the climate crisis? Here, just a couple numbers. Agriculture is responsible for 80% of, de of deforestation. Data shows between 2000 and 2010. Food systems are responsible for roughly 20 to 40% of annual greenhouse gas emissions. And agriculture uses 86% of anthropogenic nitrogen. So there's a severe impacts of systems, of food systems on the climate crisis. But then, on the other hand, what is the impact of, of the climate crisis on food systems? So, again, a few, a few numbers here to highlight that. Over the last decades, we've seen uh, reduced agricultural production by 1% to 5% per decade. And this is continuing and in increasing in severity. We've, we also know that children of age below five are 50% more likely to be malnourished when born during a drought. And this leads us then to that hunger is on the rise as a consequence of climate extremes, climate variability, and of course, many other interlinked factors such as conflict, economic shocks. So there's huge impacts of the climate crisis on food systems. And this then also leads to the acknowledgement slowly, but uh, fortunately, the international community is acknowledging that, that climate impacts on food system can exacerbate conflicts and insecurity. So it's not 
anymore only about the food and the food system, but it goes much beyond. Um, then, now getting to a, a bit more uh, the action-oriented part here of my introduction. So as Gernot said, we're here today to discuss the linkages of the UN Food System Summit and the COP. So the UN Food System Summit aims to raise global awareness and encourage commitments towards, towards healthier, more sustainable and equitable food systems. On the other side, the COP aims to secure global net zero by 2050 and keep the temperature of the planet under control by limiting its increase to 1.5 degrees. There's a concern that those two big summits, important summits in 2021, are not sufficiently linked. And with that, their agendas. Food system is insufficiently linked, insufficiently linked to the COP and the COP or the climate to the food system summit. And this has to change. This is a unique opportunity that, that we have here. That's why we put up this expert discussion and high-level panel of today. And as an ent entry point to kick us off for the discussion, we can look at the national determined contributions, the mechanisms to link the UN Food System Summit to the COP. So just a few numbers here also. We know that more than 90% of country NDCs do not take into consideration the entire food system. So there's a huge opportunity to include food systems in the revision of the NDCs now coming up for, for the COP in, in Glasgow in November. We also know that 12.5 gigatons of CO2 reduction in annual greenhouse gas emission might result from including diets, food loss, and waste in national climate plans and NDCs. We also know that 20% of the global emission, emissions reductions needed by 2050 can be delivered through improved climate action in food systems. So we have concrete entry point of, of what we can jointly do to bolster the NDCs. So with that, I hope that I have given a good overview and uh, set the scene for our panel discussion. So I will now hand over to Mark Goldberg from Global Dispatches podcast, who will introduce the panelists and moderate the panel discussion. Over to you, Mark. Uh, thank you, Peter, and welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Uh, Peter Lederach did a great job of setting up some key questions before us today, and it is now my honor to introduce an excellent panel for further discussion. Walter E. Batgen, PhD, is Director of the Regional and Sectoral Research Program in the International Research Institute for Climate and Society. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Astrid Zwick is head of the INSU Resilience Global Partnership Secretariat. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Jerry Velasquez is director of the Division of Mitigation and Adaptation at the Green Climate Fund. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Salimu Hook is director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development and Action Track 5 chair for the UN Food Systems Summit. Uh, welcome. And Ben Webster is head of Secretariat for the Risk-Informed Early Action Partnership. 
Uh, so I have a number of questions I will ask our panelists. We will then open it up to questions from the audience. To ask a question of the panelist, please simply leave your question in the comment field wherever you are listening and watching this program. Uh, with that, let me jump into my questions for the panelists. And uh, Dr. Salimul Hook, uh, the first question will go to you. Uh, please help us set the scene. You are chair for Action Track 5 of the UN Food Systems Summit, which aims to build community resilience to vulnerabilities, shocks, and stress. The pre-summit of the Food Systems Summit, which took place back in July in Rome, brought young people, farmers, indigenous people, civil society research, policy leaders, and representatives from the private sector together to present scientific evidence, launch commitments, and mobilize new financing and partnerships. In your opinion, what have been the main takeaways from this, particularly about the importance of harnessing climate action to transform food systems and the importance of food systems to tackle the climate crisis. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, uh, prior to my being uh, invited to chair Action Track 5 on resilience of the Food System Summit over the last year and a bit, uh, I have been engaged in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change for many, many years, uh, working on uh, vulnerable communities and adaptation to climate change. So. The two come together in my own mind and my own work very, very closely. Uh, it was a privilege for me to chair Action Track 5 on Resilience of the Food System Summit. We did a lot of consultations with many, many different groups, and in particular with young people, youth groups, which we feel are some of the most important elements <clears throat> in terms of system change. We've been talking, we heard both from uh, the previous speakers, uh, Gernot and, and Peter, that we're talking about system change and not just incremental change anymore. We simply don't have time for incremental changes anymore. We need to go for systematic and systemic changes. And in that context, I feel young people have by far the biggest role to play. They are the ones with the energy. They are the ones who are going to inherit the future. And they are the ones who can shape the future. And I'm very, very pleased to see that under the UN Food System Summit, we have engaged with young people in a very big way. Each of the action tracks have a vice chair for youth. They are doing just the day before the summit on the 22nd of September. And they will then be linking this with the pre-COP youth summit that will take place in Italy, in Milan, just before the COP that takes place in uh, uh, Glasgow in November. So this is a single thread. It starts with the Food System Summit and then goes to the Climate Change Summit and then goes further beyond that into the next 10 years of trying to make food systems all over the world, but particularly in the most vulnerable countries, resilient to the impacts of climate change, as well as other kinds of shocks that we have seen, like the COVID-19 shock that we that we had for the last year and a half. So I am very uh, hopeful that we will be able to do this. It's a huge challenge. It's not going to be easy, but it is something that we have tremendous energy behind and a lot of people engaged in doing. And to me, that is really the uh, the biggest outcome of the Food System Summit is the energy of many, many different people that have engaged in it. It's not just governments talking to each other and writing a piece of paper, but it is many, many different in, uh, constituencies involved. And I would pick young people as perhaps the most important one. Thank you. Uh, 
Ben Webster, Astrid Zwick, and Walter Batgen, I have a similar set of questions uh, for each of you. Ben Webster, I will start with you. Uh, ben, please explain to our audience what the Risk-Informed Early Action Partnership is and what it aims to achieve. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Well, just to start by saying what we mean by Risk-Informed Early Action. Um, so this is action that can be taken predicated on a forecast or collective risk analysis um, that actually takes place before these hazards happen, whether that's floods or a storm uh, or drought now. Um, but these are actions that can actually help to reduce the impact of those hazards. Uh, and there's been great progress in recent years um, using the, the improved climate information services to take early or anticipatory approaches from UN agencies, uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, civil society actors. But in 2019, um, governments, uh, these groups of agencies, the implementing partners came together to say, we really want to see these approaches taken to scale. Um, we've seen that they save more lives, uh, provide more dignified assistance for people. But how can we create this systemic shift? And therefore, REAP or the Risk Informed Early Action Partnership um, was created to bring together these different stakeholder groups um, and we have a target to make 1 billion people safer from disaster by 2025. So really, our role is to, to convene this conversation, to bring together the different actors involved so that we can see this systemic shift from reactive humanitarian response that takes place after the hazard has already turned into disaster, um, shift to proactive risk management that can actually help to reduce the impact um, of these hazards before they've even hit uh, the most vulnerable communities. Um, so that's what we're aiming to do, and we really look forward to taking part in this conversation today. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Astrid, over to you. What is the INSU Resilience Global Partnership, and what does it aim to achieve? Thank you very much, Mark. The Injury Resilience Global Partnership is a truly uh, global coalition of various stakeholders to increase the resilience of poor and vulnerable people in vulnerable countries. And that through the help of a large instrumentarium, namely climate and disaster risk finance and insurance solutions. We are now a growing partnership and uh, are having 109 members currently from governments, academia, uh, multilateral organizations, private sector to really help to scale up pre-arranged predictable financing for early action, relief and recovery. So the full suite of the risk continuum. And uh, through that, we also really want to uh, provide and promote the change, the transformational change that needs to happen, a shift from ex post to ex ante action to really manage risk in a timely manner, in an efficient manner. This is also critical to safeguard the resilience of food mm -hmm. systems. And uh, behind that, um, we are uh, gathering and convening our uh, diver different stakeholders under a grand vision, Vision 2025, um, with the aim of protecting and covering 500 million poor and vulnerable people from the impact of disasters. Uh, we also want to support 80 countries um, 
with designing comprehensive climate and disaster risk finance and insurance strategies. We also get support by the private sector with uh, an additional 5 billion US dollar insurance coverage and support. And uh, of course, we want to narrow the protection gap and um, reduce um, the ever annual climate and disaster risk losses uh, by 10% in these countries. And we have achieved quite some um, results. We have 22 large programs out in more than 100 countries with more than 200 projects. And by that, and uh, the Injury Resilience Global Partnership was launched at the COP23 in 2017, um, until now, we have uh, we can provide coverage to 137 million people through active the solutions of climate and disaster risk finance and insurance. We have reached 33 countries with a comprehensive uh, strategy on climate and disaster risk finance, and uh, 49 out of 60 countries we want to uh, reach with active solutions at governmental level. Um, I think I can continue later uh, with more details, but uh, for now, this overview. Thank you. Over to you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Astrid. And Walter, uh, now to you. Can you explain to us what is the Digital Climate Advisory Service Blueprint and what it aims to achieve? Sure. Thank you, Mark. So, we all know that climate has always been a, a determinant factor for agricultural production. But uh, a changing climate is imposing new and, and very important challenges. And therefore, more than ever, we need decisions in agriculture that are supported with best possible climate information. Now, on, on the other hand, there is a dramatic increase in the use of digital tools in agriculture, tools for automating processes to analyze huge amounts of data, to generate recommendations that incorporate uh, climate information to improve agriculture production. And actually those tools, a lot of those tools that incorporate climate information, these digital tools, to support agricultural decisions are, are being increasingly used by quite a lot of commercial agriculture uh, farmers. The challenge is how do we ensure that those tools are also accessible for the 300 million small farmers in the world? And so this blueprint, it's a, I think it's a wonderful document, it's like a roadmap with input from more than 150 stakeholders representing 25 institutions that come from development institutes, from research institutes from the private sector. And, and this blueprint, this roadmap, does basically four things. One, it analyzes the investment, the investment needs to reach 300 million small farmers around the world. It also assesses the expected return of those investments. It, it then defines what are the, the characteristics, the principles of digital advisory systems that should guide those investments. And then finally, and I think very importantly, it clarifies the roles 
of the public sector and the private sector in different countries to ensure that these advisory tools reach every farmer, small farmers and commercial farmers. So I think it's a, it's a document that is, I consider very, very useful, very conceptually very robust, but at the same time, a very nice practical roadmap to guide these investments. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I'll now turn to Jerry Velasquez. Uh, Jerry, the Green, the Green Climate Fund is the largest multilateral funder of climate adaptation and mitigation globally. GCF supports the climate action solutions represented by the colleagues here on this panel, namely early action, insurance, and climate services. Can you please explain to the audience what GCF aims to achieve and how these solutions help you achieve these goals? Many thanks. So um, as uh, you've already explained, we are a financial instrument of uh, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, in particular the Paris Agreement. Um, there is one particular goal that we hope to achieve, and that is to maintain a balance of our investment, 50% on adaptation, 50% on mitigation. At this point, uh, in fact, we have more projects on mitigation. We're about 47% uh, adaptation. So uh, it actually is an important um, um, aspect for us to make that balance, to invest more on projects that uh, focus on adaptation. And in addition to agriculture and food security, early warning, early action, insurance, and climate services fall into that category of building resilience and adaptation. So it actually is a no-brainer for us to partner with uh, REAP and ensure resilience because uh, we hope to actually encourage uh, our partners to uh, send us more transformative uh, projects. Uh, the GCF is quite unique because um, uh, what we hope to do is to invest at scale and to create transformation, call it paradigm shift. So these kind of investments are the ones that we are looking for. And uh, we do hope that uh, through partnership with we uh, and Ensure Resilience, we could uh, develop those projects in the future. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to now turn back to Salim Hook. Uh, there have been concerns that climate is not properly represented in the UN Food Systems Summit. Often people say climate has its own track through the UNFCCC process and COP26 and does not need to link to the UN Food Systems Summit specifically. And this disconnection works both ways as well. Food systems have in the past not been reflected in the COPs. Uh, first, I'd like to know if you share this concern that climate action and food systems aren't properly linked together. And secondly, can you provide some advice on what needs to be done to link food systems summit and COPs agendas on food systems and climate and vice versa? That's an excellent uh, question, uh... Uh, Mark, and, and indeed it is sometimes one gets the impression that there are silos in which one issue is discussed in one venue by one set of actors and another issue is discussed in another uh, silo with a different set of actors, even within governments, uh, different groups or different ministries or institutions. But the issues of food systems as well as climate change are so cross-cutting and so interconnected whether it be at the local level, at a, a very local level, or even within a country, or at the global level, that they are just impossible to be disentangled. And one of the reasons why 
I accepted the invitation to chair Action Track 5 on Resilience of the Food System Summit, although I'm not a food system person myself, was to make that connection, to hopefully enable the Food System Summit to be informed about the climate change implications. And one of the, in fact, several of the outcomes, but one major alliance coming out of uh, the Food System Summit will be on making food systems more resilient to climate change. And I will be very strongly associated with that uh, going out of the summit. As you know, the summit is going to launch a set of activities. It's not going to end with some kind of a declaration. It's going to set, set in train activities going forward with different alliances. And one of them will be linking to climate change. And in the climate change arena, you're quite right. Food and agriculture have not seen been taken very much integrated into the activities of climate change, both on the mitigation side, where agriculture plays a big role in emissions of greenhouse gases, as well as on the adaptation side, where agriculture in particular and food systems more broadly are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So hopefully, as I said earlier, the connection of the Food System Summit taking place in September and then going forward to the COP26 of the Climate Framework Convention in November will be able to make that link on a much more uh, substantive manner and take forward the recommendations and the actions, more importantly, that will be able to make our food systems more robust in the light of climate change as well. The two are inextricably linked. One cannot do one without the other, in my view. And hopefully we'll be able to manage to bring that together uh, in the coming months. Uh, thank you. Uh, and again, I have a set of questions for Ben Webster, Astrid Zwick, and Walter Batkin. Uh, the platforms that each of you represent can be broadly framed as climate actions that deal with the potential uh, of risk of shocks and, and stressors through risk reduction and management. However, we know that climate action also has the potential to transform food systems. Can you give us an idea and examples of how your initiatives tackle some of the challenges food systems face right now by supporting its transformation? Uh, and Ben, let's start with you. Thanks, Mark. Um, maybe just to start by saying I completely agree with Salim, you know, these um, different risks and different issues, they are overlaying and they're compound. We've seen it with COVID-19. Um, you know, we cannot... Uh, extricate all these different um, issues from one another and therefore that means a we have to increase our risk literacy and an understanding um, of the language and the issues involved in managing these different risks and b we have to try and deal with them in a much more holistic way and therefore as as the risk informed early action partnership we are trying to bring together these different stakeholders involved, reduce the silos that Celine mentioned, you know, between government departments, between the humanitarian community, the climate community, the development community, and exchange the learning and ensure that we are we are working on this together. So just to provide a quick example from one of our partners working in India with the Ministry of uh, Rural Development there, one of the world's biggest um, social protection mechanisms focused on public works um, has they've been able to adapt it um, to ensure it's more shock responsive. So uh, it provides 100 days of wage employment um, for the rural population around India, but has an extra risk management component of an extra 50 days that can trigger in the case of an extreme drought. Now, in the past, um, that has triggered late and hasn't enabled the 
the communities and the families and the farmers in particular um, to to benefit during that hardest period of the drought. Uh, but now through support from the Institute um, of Environment and Development, uh, they've been able to adapt that so that it can trigger in advance of the worst impact of the drought so that people can become more resilient. And of course, that impacts on the agriculture sector in the rural parts of India, making people more resilient. So we're looking for these small adaptations that can really have a huge impact across the sectors. Uh, thank you. And Astrid, over to you. Can you give us an idea and share some examples of how your initiatives tackle some of the challenges food systems face and uh, by supporting food systems transformation? Thank you very much, Mark. Yes, um, our implementing members and partners of the Injury Resilience Global Partnership are here to develop um, and provide climate and disaster risk finance and insurance solutions that are able to transfer residual risks, risks that cannot be prevented, uh, risks that cannot be reduced or mitigated. So this is a cost-effective um, uh, way to do so. Um, food systems, of course, need to be adapted where possible. And we have seen um, the uh, through the various um, um, studies that um, adaptation is uh very key here and having adaptation strategies and climate and disaster risk finance and insurance uh, thus naturally uh, can provide a part of a comprehensive adaptation uh, strategy. And there's a good interface when you look at the partnership um, and the implementing partners. Many of these implementing programs are uh, having a focus on risk transfer in the agricultural context. I give you uh, some examples, um, particularly at the governmental level. Uh, implementing partners are providing support, uh, for example, um, through the um, role of regional risk pools. The African Risk Capacity is one of these examples. It's an African Union uh, initiative um, designed to improve responses to drought-induced food crisis and builds on membership states' capacities to manage this risk with the pooling solutions. In 2020, for example, uh, the payouts for uh, crisis uh, were 28 million US dollars um, for five African countries to kickstart their contingency plans they have to prepare when embarking on the risk, African risk capacity. At a micro scale, and especially looking at micro entrepreneurs, at the individual farmers or so, uh, there is a World Bank managed um, program called the Global Index Insurance Facility. And uh, this is particularly geared to the micro level, as we call it. Um, we uh, cover with that already 40 million beneficiaries that have uh, acquired uh, protection under this scheme. Um, and um, this is uh, especially in currently running in about uh, 10 countries. We have also another very interesting scheme uh, for the bottom of the pyramid, very, very poor people uh, with the World Food Programs R4 
the Rural Resilience Initiative, uh, providing uh, insurance for risk management activities, which is a quite an interesting solution. Um, I can continue with uh, some local activities in Pakistan, the Cash Foundation, uh, a non-banking microfinance organization, also looking into uh, particularly supporting women. And uh, in Madagascar, also um, looking at uh, food uh, and uh, agricultural value chains and uh, supporting the adaptation of these. So <coughs> I stop here and hand over to you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Astrid. And Walter, uh, over to you with the same question. So we're talking about uh, climate-informed digital advisory tools, and, and we have many examples around the world, including uh, with small farmers, how these advisory tools can be very helpful in improving the sustainability of food production systems. Uh, for example, improving farmer decisions on what crops to plant, when to plant them, what management practices to use based on good risk management and risk assessment. On the other hand, these digital tools can, can provide very, very valuable information on, on the expected prices. This is something that is increasingly important for small farmers. So information on the expected prices of the food that farmers are producing or they're planning to produce and how those prices can change due to climate shocks. They can also, these digital tools can also be instrumental. And here again, we have many examples around the developing world to design robust insurance tools or other financial tools that help farmers to transfer the risks that they cannot manage. Now, all of these are examples of how these digital advisory tools help food systems in the food production stages. But these digital tools can also establish early warning systems, for example, that can be instrumental in other phases of the food system. For example, early warning systems that can be very helpful in the transportation of food, in the distribution, and in the storage of food. So there is a lot of examples already in the world of how these digital advisory tools are helping food systems across the different components. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I'm going to turn it back to Jerry Velasquez. Uh, the Green Climate Fund has largely been supporting climate action mitigation and adaptation programs, but perhaps focuses less on food systems. Uh, I know that you were inspired by the Food Systems Pre-Summit in Rome back in July, and that you have identified opportunities for additional projects that GCF could fund to help, to help transform food systems. Uh, can you tell us about the gaps you have identified and what means the Green Climate Fund has to support the transformation of food systems through climate action? Um, many thanks. So um, during the first five years of operations of the GCF, we invested uh, about $5.5 billion in total. But on food and agriculture, we only invested about $400 million. So fundamentally about $100 million per year. Um, in our first replenishment, which is 2020 to 2023, we have more money, about 10 billion, and we have to invest it in a shorter period, four years. 
This means we have to double our programming. Um, and fundamentally, it means that we have to, at the bare minimum, invest about $200 million per year in agriculture and food security. Two years on, 2020-2021, we have only invested $173 million on food uh, and agriculture. So that means we are so late in this topic. And um, what is the reason for that? And uh, this, is, this actually is uh, it's a serious <laughs> problem for us because uh, we would like to, in fact, uh, invest more on uh, food security and agriculture. And in the coming two years, we, we really need to double our effort. We need to invest, at the very least, about 600 to 700 million dollars. Now, how can we do that? We already work with some of the partners here. WFP, we have three projects, but uh, their projects are fairly small. I think Mozambique, Senegal, and Zimbabwe. Our larger partners are the World Bank, IFAD, and FAO. There's a very interesting project that we recently approved for IFAD. It's in the Sahel region. It has three components. One is an Climate information services for agriculture. That's the first component. That then allows for climate smart agriculture. That's the second component, which then is linked to insurance, which is both micro, managed by WFP, and sovereign, which is the Africa capacity. This is a $140 million project. Now, what we need are more projects like this. Larger projects, probably, maybe this could serve as an inspiration, probably, for example, in the Caribbean, in CRIF. So we hope that this could serve as an inspiration and more projects like this. Uh, Thank you. I have a final round of questions for our panelists. Uh, A reminder, if you would like to ask a question of the panelists, please simply leave your question in the comment field wherever you are viewing uh, this live webcast. Uh, So I have the same question uh, for each of you. Uh, We heard from Peter Lederach's opening remarks that there exists a unique opportunity through the revision of the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, in preparation of COP26 to set targets and initiatives that reduce the impact of unsustainable food systems on the global climate, while at the same time helping agriculture and food sectors become more resilient to the impacts of climate change. What is your institution doing to capitalize on this very unique opportunity and Salimo, I'll go with you first. Thank you very much, Mark. And that's an excellent uh, question and, and an excellent opportunity in my view. Uh, so a couple of things that my uh, institution, which is the International Center for Climate Change and Development based at the Independent University of Bangladesh is involved in. Firstly, in my country, Bangladesh, we have been putting, uh, uh, providing inputs to the nationally determined contribution NDC of Bangladesh, which originally the first INDC did not include the agriculture and land use sector. But this time, the new NDC, which has just been submitted by the government of Bangladesh, has included agriculture and the food systems and land use in a bigger way than it had before. And that, I think, is an extremely important way forward. And I understand that quite a few other NDCs of developing countries are beginning to do that as well. That's a good sign. Uh, At a more general, uh, across the uh, um, different vulnerable countries, I run a center, my center runs a a network of universities from the least developed countries. It's called the LDC Universities Consortium on Climate Change. And we have university partners in uh, about 20 LDCs. We 
hope to do all 48 LDCs uh, within another year or two. But in the 20 LDCs that we are already operating with partners, uh, the universities in those countries are beginning to look at this sector in a much, much more significant way. They worked on climate change adaptation and also looking at food systems at the same time. So we are hoping to build national level capacity to do research and to provide research inputs into national planning and national development going forward as well. Uh, thank you. And Astrid, over to you. How is your institution harnessing this unique moment in preparation of the uh, NDCs? Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, the NDCs, as well as the NAPs, the National Adaptation Plans, are key to the implementation of the Paris Agreement. And our aim is to integrate uh, climate and disaster risk finance and insurance into the toolkit uh, they are providing when they uh, advise uh, and support countries in their strategies. We, what we have done so far is we have worked together with UNFCCC and other partners to uh, develop a policy note including five action areas um, to integrate and how to integrate uh, climate and disaster risk finance and insurance into the NDCs. And the action areas uh, comprise capacity building initiatives, supporting climate policymakers with expertise and so on. It's a collaboration and uh, we are looking for piloting that uh, in various regions. Uh, very recently, we also have uh, published a report we've uh, drafted together with um, the National Adaptation Plan Global Network to look for, it was an analysis the NAP um, uh, Global Network has conducted to look for entry points of climate and disaster risk finance and insurance into the national adaptation plans. And uh, here we have launched a report with respective recommendations. So um, this is a concrete action we've taken and we will drive forward uh, still uh, and, and, and try to uh, really become uh, in the, a part of the toolkit um, driving adaptation, comprehensive adaptation strategies forward. Uh, thank you. Uh, and now, Walter, over to you. So I think, you know, the, the reason why we, we are having this event is that we all agree that we need to bring together the discussions on the climate change adaptation, climate change mitigation, and sustainable food systems. Now, the, the elaboration of the NDCs and the NAPs are, are formal environments where the climate communities at the country level interact with the communities that are working in different sectors, including those working in, in food systems. And therefore, you know, we at the IRI, the International Research Institute for Climate and Society of Columbia University, we, we realize that these are very concrete opportunities and outstanding opportunities to, to contribute to some real action for, for connecting these communities. So, you know, in the NDCs, the countries are making commitments to help mitigate climate change, but at the same time, they need to ensure the sustainability of the food systems. So at the IRI, we are, we are making big efforts to ensure that, that we contribute to the NDC process. Sometimes what we do is, is we, we help the meteorological institutes to connect better with the stakeholders. Sometimes we, we connect directly through the agricultural institutions. 
And we are contributing to the NDCs in, in several countries, including Ethiopia, Guatemala, Colombia, Vietnam, Uruguay. And the, we will now start contributing to NDCs in several other African countries in a new project, big project funded by the World Bank with the CGIR. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Ben, uh, to you. Thanks, Mark. Um, I mentioned earlier that we're trying to provide these more holistic approaches to risk management. And the partnership's first target, so REAP Target 1, is focused on countries integrating their climate change adaptation and disaster risk management policies, plans, legislative frameworks, and so on. Um, and in this space, obviously, the NDCs and the NAPs, as Astrid mentioned as well, are, are critical um, in terms of bringing this more holistic approach. Um, and recently, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, UNDRR, has asked us to help convene some of the different actors or stakeholders who are involved in supporting governments to develop these policies, plans and legislative frameworks so that we can align efforts more effectively. We can um, ensure we have similar approaches and tools that we know who is supporting which governments on which particular issues. So I think there's a lot of desire and will to support governments to develop these uh, more holistic, more effective policies and plans and so on. Um, but our role uh, is trying to facilitate that coordination and ensure that we're all pulling in the same direction. Uh, thank you. And Jerry, before I turn to you for some concluding remarks, let me once again remind viewers that we are about to get to your questions. To ask a question, please simply leave uh, your question as a comment in the field wherever you are watching the live stream. And we'll get to those momentarily. But first, let's hear uh, some concluding remarks from Jerry. Over to you. Uh, many thanks. So at the GCF, uh, we support countries uh, to update their NDCs, but also to convert their NDCs into investment plans. And to do this, we provide countries with a grant uh, of uh, $1 million per year uh, in a flexible way to, uh, to do these things. In addition to this, uh, what we call the readiness grant, which is uh, this $1 million per year, we also provide up $3 million to countries to develop what we call the National Adaptation Plan for Climate Change. Most countries will focus this on various issues, including water, agriculture, and, and other particular issues that are of importance to them. So um, we do provide uh, this kind of support. Uh, at the moment, we are uh, on request of the SIDS. We are providing uh, support to update their NDCs through the NDC partnership and UNDP. And, uh, but uh, our main focus is to convert these strategies into investment plans. Uh, thank you. I am now going to hand the uh, virtual microphone over to Reese Bucknell-Williams from CGIAR, who has been monitoring the questions coming in from the audience. Uh, Reese, over to you. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for the discussions today. And yes, lots of uh, comments and chat on, uh, on the various live stream uh, uh, platforms. Um, so uh, we have a number of questions uh, to run through. Um, it'd be great to get your thoughts. And perhaps the first one might be uh, aimed at Astrid, uh, although others are very welcome to, to, to chip in on this. So, I mean, we've seen uh, initiatives like the uh, new Financial Alliance for Net Zero Emissions, which you know sort of brought together financial institutions that you know have you know trillions of assets uh, under management. 
So looking at, uh, you know, the UN Food System Summit and COP26, you know, from the kind of private sector and sort of investment angle, like what kind of commitments could we see at these two summits that could help the private sector sort of uh, achieve our goals? Anyway, incorporating things such as risk, for example. Thank you. I hope I understood that well. Um, so uh, what uh, can be done uh, and uh, what's uh, probably coming up um, is uh, that, uh, of course, uh, through the um, for initiatives like uh, our partnerships, we are um, trying to convene our actors uh, among uh, uh, common uh, activities, common goals to really scale up uh, action. Um, we, uh, for example, um, we are uh, very much looking into uh, the impact of um, our activities underneath the Injury Resilience Global Partnership. Uh, and we are currently creating together with our uh, partners an, an evidence roadmap uh, that is going to be launched during um, the climate um, um, conference of the parties. Um, and uh, we also are uh, looking into um, other topics like um, including the gender uh, aspects and gender dimensions. Uh, so we are uh, going to launch our uh, Gen Excellence Center on Gender Smart Solutions uh, during that um, uh, conference of the parties as well. So there are a lot of uh, activities out, but also uh, we are striving to uh, develop uh, discussions further on how to really uh, be able to scale up. And we are working together with the private sector uh, here uh, strongly to um, really include expertise uh, on that side uh, in um, uh, develop um, tailor-made solutions in uh, particular countries. The tripartite agreement is uh, one example. So it's a coalition um, with the Insurance Development Forum. Uh, and uh, that uh, is also uh, one uh, part of the activities. Over to you. Thank you, Astrid. Um, so we have a question from uh, from Franz, uh, who, who notes that um, yeah, under Action Track 5 of the UN Food System Summit process, um, there have been a number of uh, game-changing solutions being submitted, uh, including sort of digital tools, um, including one like we have at the CGIR, which is the uh, Climate Security Observatory. So maybe th this question is uh, perhaps best directed to Ben, but others are also welcome to come in on this. But, you know, which sort of, are you aware of the game-changing solutions being sort of proposed and, you know, which of these are most promising for thinking about, uh, you know, peace and security and stability and crisis management? Thanks, Rhys. Um, and thanks for the question. So I guess I guess the initiatives being profiled today are some of the game-changing solutions that are being proposed. Um, and I am aware that in terms of early action, you know, the issue that we're working on, um, there are other areas across the UN Food System Summit. It's such a broad agenda and it covers so many different aspects um, that, you know, in actual fact, early action is able to benefit in different places. So, for instance, uh, under the HDP, the Humanitarian Development Peace Nexus, anticipatory approaches are being profiled there as a potential game-changing solution as well. I think the important thing 
for me is that um, the UN Food System Summit is able to bring together some of these different uh, initiatives and coalitions. What we need is combined effort. I think we need uh, to bring the states together, the countries, um, rather than dissipating our resource across lots of different efforts. The more we can align, the more we can work together to achieve these common aims, the better. So I think uh, the Food System Summit is throwing out lots of different game-changing initiatives. The important thing for me would be that we uh, we align these efforts uh, and trying to to pull together in one direction. Thank you, Ben. Um, so during the course of today's event, I mean, Peter noted it as well, but also Walter and, and Jerry have also mentioned this a few times about the uh, the NDCs issues and how we, we can kind of use the NDCs as an opportunity to uh, you know, to kind of link uh, the agendas and ambitions of uh, Food System Summit and, and, and COP26. So um, my question would be, you know, we mentioned some countries, but it would be nice if maybe we could identify some of the countries that are doing perhaps inspirational or interesting work on their NDCs that others, other countries could kind of use as a blueprint of, of how to approach these. Uh, perhaps uh, Walter or Jerry, would you like would you like to go on that question? I yeah, I, I can tell you some uh, concrete examples of the work we're doing in some countries. I. I'm not sure I want to tell to say that these are examples for everybody else because each country is, is, is different. But I'll tell you what, one thing that we're finding out is that it's critical to, to help connect the community. So typically in, in every country developing and some developed countries too, the different communities work in silos. So you have the climate community, you have the agriculture community, you have the food processing community, and the, the most significant impact, the best advances that we find is when we are able to connect this community. So when, when, climate, the, when the climate community understands not just producing information that is interesting, but producing information that is helpful, that, it, that is being requested, is being demanded by the socioeconomic sectors, when, when people learn to understand each other's language and, and when you start tailoring your work, not based on your interest, but based on the user's demands, then you start seeing very dramatic improvements in the way that, that these communities work. And, and the, the contributions to, to good NDCs, they have to have that. They have to have this connection. Otherwise, it becomes a, you know, a bureaucratic process where a group of people write a set of documents and check the box. What we, we are really pushing to, to, to show, you know, help countries to, to see that these are concrete opportunities, very important opportunities where you can connect climate, socioeconomic sectors, and produce development programs that are uh, very good for adapting to climate change, to mitigate climate change, to improve risk management, etc. So we're trying to, we're really making a big effort to, to work in, in, in countries and, and show, demonstrate that this can be really concrete opportunities. Thank you, Walter. And um, 
I actually had another question which I could also uh, pose to you while we're on the subject. So you, you mentioned the importance of connections. Um, so perhaps I was curious about how can the private sector, and particularly in the digital space which you talked about, how can they better perhaps engage or, or more effectively engage with the UNFSS and COP26 process to sort of help frame the commitments? So I, I would encourage you and everybody attending this event to, to read the document, the blueprint on, on this digital informed uh, climate advisories. Um, because one of the things that the document does, I was saying, you know, is conceptually very robust, but it's also very practical. And what the, what the document does is it, it maps the world and, and, uh, and indicates what is the digital readiness of different countries and what is the vulnerability to climate variability and change. So you have this matrix. And then, of course, if you are in a country that has a lot of limitations for communications, very bad coverage of communications, the, the private sector has a, a more limited role there. So the, in those type of countries that are not digitally ready, that's where we need big effort from developing institutions, from, from the countries, from the public funds. Now, when you move to, to countries like, you know, where you have, yes, big vulnerability to climate uh, variability and change, but the countries are more ready for, digit, for the implementation of digital tools. And some examples that we know are Vietnam or Uruguay. In, in those countries, then the private sector has a much more active role to play. So again, I, I encourage to, uh, you guys to read this document because it has some very practical, uh, very practical suggestions, so like a roadmap for this type of questions. Thank you. Um, so the G20 uh, recently held its ministerial meeting, uh, and it was the first time that uh, the agriculture ministers and the, and the uh, development ministers were uh, met. Um, so I was curious, obviously we've spoken today a lot about UNFS, UNFSS and COP26, but how can, I'm curious how other bodies of regional or global governance particularly like the G20, I mean, how can they help also kind of promote the links between these two sectors? Um, and um, perhaps this, this question might be best directed to either Jerry or Dr. Huck, uh, who might have some perspectives on this. Well, I'm happy to have a go and, and uh, uh, Jerry can come in if he wishes. Um, so um, I think that the very important development in the G20 meetings this year where agriculture ministers along with finance ministers, along with development ministers, and of course heads of government are going to be coming together because the G20 countries are in essence the set of countries that need to be the pioneers, the first movers in taking things forward for any kind of systemic change to take place at a global level. If the leading countries and leading economies aren't willing to do it or aren't uh, uh, investing in doing it, then it's going to be very, very difficult for the other countries which are not as powerful, not as big, not as able to change systems uh, as these big countries. The G20, in my view, are effectively the leading economies of the world that have a much greater responsibility than the rest of the world in order to, for them uh, to do the things that they 
talk about doing. The good thing is they all talk about it. Now, this is not something that's new or even something that there is objection to, uh, but they don't do it. And so making it happen to me is the big challenge. How do we actually move from talk to action and deliver on that action and implement? And I think the COVID-19 crisis has shown us that talk is not going to get us out of a crisis. Only action is going to get us out of a crisis. So hopefully uh, the year 2021 will be a game-changing year for the leaders of these 20 countries, the G20 countries, to take things forward. At least I remain hopeful. Thank you. And Jerry, do you have any further comments on that? Um, maybe just a compliment. I really think that uh, the main difference between climate change and food systems is that uh, climate change, we have a framework and business models that actually work on how to tackle the problem. So uh, we're not yet there, but there are models. Unfortunately, those models don't exist yet in the, in the, in the food system space. What needs to happen, I think, is to, in fact, use the framework that is already in place in climate change to, in fact, deal with the issues uh, on food, food loss and waste, for example, or financial inclusion. Um, it is something that we could do in the context of uh, uh, the work that we do in climate change. We just need to expand it. Uh, so I think we could take inspiration from that. Okay, thank you. So we have a question from uh, Lillian, which I, I'm going to open to the floor and, and welcome a, 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 any other panelists to to uh, contribute and answer to. But Lillian asks, um, how is gender integrated in the UNFSS processes? Uh, it would be interesting to understand what is being done to ensure that the voices of the vulnerable and indigenous communities are considered. Um, is there anyone who, who would like to chip in on I'd Lillian's be, question? Yeah? I'd be happy to kick it off and then others can join. So yes, having, you know, having run uh, the uh, uh, very, very extensive consultation process of uh, the UN Food System Summit, I was co-chair of Action Track 5, but all the Action Track chairs, we have been working very, very closely with each other, making sure that we take a systems approach and don't end up in our own silos. Um, and we've been talking to myriad uh, different constituencies from around the world, uh, and in particular, uh, uh, gender has been a very important part. We have gender focal points, we have gender champions, we have been having meetings with uh, women's groups around the world, uh, and it's extremely uh, well embedded. I mentioned youth as one very important constituency. I would say gender is a second constituency, uh, along with other constituencies, indigenous uh, people's groups, farmers' groups, uh, um, and, and many others, private sector, both small private sector and large private sector, all have had a very big role to play. I think one of the innovative features of the UN Food System Summit is a genuinely people summit. There's been participation from all over the world, unlike other kinds of summit where governments come together and they agree on language for a declaration. This one is about taking actions and including people along with governments. They have a big role to play. Uh, but uh, non-governmental entities, non-state actors have had a big, big role in uh, designing the actions that we have come up with so far. And hopefully we'll have a role in the implementation of those actions after the summit is concluded in uh, later this month. So um, gender has been very, very central in this. Uh, absolutely. And I did see Thank that Astrid had you. her hand up uh, yes. to, uh, to interject here. Please go ahead, Astrid. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Thank you very much. And uh, just uh, echoing uh, Salimul, uh, it's uh, a very important uh, topic. It's cross-cutting topic in our vision 2025. And uh, with that and uh, through the guidance and co-chair personship by Canada and Care International, we have set up uh, a gender working group and now uh, launching our uh, gender center on excellence on gender smart solutions. Uh, and that trickles down into the solutions uh, for the food systems and the agricultural sector ultimately through our programs as we are through that uh, center of excellence, developing guidance, criteria, sharing best practices uh, on what can be done to uh, better include the gender dimension uh, and the uh, uh, different needs and demands of uh, the female um, uh, population here in, um, in the various sectors and, and systems. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Astrid. And perhaps as a as a kind of final rounding off question, um, we've uh, this is open to to anyone to to reply. But uh, we've seen in the headlines, obviously in recent months, you know, a number of sort of climate and weather disasters, you know, in developing countries in the U.S., in Europe, Australia, and, and other regions. Um, so how is that changing attitudes and perceptions of you know risk and disaster preparedness and and and, and policies on climate? Um, so is are we seeing a kind of a shifting priorities or is, is it you know is it a rising priority um and perhaps linked to that perhaps one of the things we've learned from the covid-19 pandemic is an understanding of how integrated our world is and how risks uh, um uh, uh, are are connected um so um so yeah so i uh, just welcome any sort of really broad reflective comments from from uh, any panelist on on maybe how you know in a changing world it's it's sort of driving a shift in policy and and, and how we can take advantage of that in the coming months uh and the food system summit and the cop I'm Walter? happy to jump in. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, yeah Walter first. Yeah. No, so, you know, <clears throat> these uh, extreme events that have been happening around the world and including in, in developed countries, I think that sometimes, you know, sometimes wrongly, but sometimes it's making people to connect those extreme events to a changing climate. Then this happens in, in the context of a pandemic, something that is also global. So, I think what is happening is that people around the world, including in the developed countries, are, are realizing what a global phenomenon can do to societies. Uh, so, and I think that that is that is uh, that is helping also to realize that even in the richest countries, you know, places like New York City, some of the richest places in the world. Even in those countries, extreme events can have a huge impact if you don't have the right system in place. So I, I, what I believe is that uh, these type of extreme events are, are doing several things. One is raising the consciousness of people around the world and connecting them with the climate change, with, with a global phenomenon like a, like a changing climate that is being viewed as the next global threat. Uh, but it's also making everybody uh, realize that even in the most, you know, in the richest countries in the world, the systems for early warning and for early actions are not very good. So this is helping us to, to, to also think how 
the, the type of systems that we need to establish in around the world in developing countries. Thank you, Walter. Dr. Huck, you, you wanted to contribute? Yes, so just building up on what just uh, what Walter just said, uh, I think, you know, the last 18 months or so has been a, a eye-opener globally uh, that has connected climate change impacts that we are now seeing all over the world. The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has very unequivocally said we have already entered a climate change world. This is now not something that is going to happen. It's something that's already happening and every day is going to get worse. And the COVID-19 has shown us that we are not ready for these kinds of global uh, pandemics and, and uh, global crises. So the sense of urgency, the sense of crisis, the sense of emergency, I think is something that is new. And hopefully we'll drive action to try and make our systems more robust and more resilient. And that really is the hope that we have that out of crisis comes some level of uh, improvement in the conditions because we were certainly not uh, fit for purpose in the past and building back to the old way cannot uh, be the future at all. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, so well uh, formulated uh, by Salimul and uh, Walter. The fiscal space is getting tight. I mean, we see that uh, through the uh, crisis uh, and the complex risk landscape um, that has um, uh, emerged over the past uh, one and a half years. The protection gap is widening. I mean, uh, countries with um, uh, insurance penetration of less than 1% uh, show that uh, the majority of the population uh, is uh, really uh, left behind. And uh, I think uh, what uh, needs to be done is really understanding the risks better, understanding the risk landscape, um, and also plan ahead, uh, be better prepared. Uh, and uh, through uh, the climate and disaster risk finance and insurance solutions uh, that um, can be, uh, for example, factored in, I mean, to uh, really comprehensively manage uh, various types of risks that are uh, emerging and uh, are really putting development gains at, uh, at risk and, and uh, put many people back into poverty if uh, nothing happens uh, in the future. I mean, really looking into uh, getting fast liquidity, getting the answers fast, not waiting for uh, um, development aid that uh, comes uh, later uh, so urgent action is uh, is needed and uh, i think we can see already a, a change in uh, in the awareness that uh, there needs to be uh, an uh, a shift into the ex ante approach rather than waiting and uh, recover thanks i saw thank ben uh, ben had his hand up and then we'll turn yeah, to jerry ben, jerry yeah thank you Thanks, Mark. Well, just to build on the other interventions, um, I think that preparedness is absolutely crucial. The Crisis Lookout Coalition have done some analysis to show that less than 2% of the finances required for the COVID response were pre-arranged, were pre-agreed and available when required. Um, so just imagine if we can prepare ourselves collectively, um, you know, to have say 50% of the, the finances required to be able to mount an effective uh, response as soon as we know, you know, there's a, a 
a major risk on the horizon. We have to switch towards this proactive approach. Um, as Salim mentioned, you know, there's been this growing sense in recent months that we are absolutely in this together, you know, globally. Um, no one will be uh, safe from the changing climate. It will impact all of us in one way or another. And therefore, we have to use this year, COP26 as the moment um, to set these collective outcomes, the collective goals and shift towards this anticipatory approach to preparedness um, and alignment and coordination as required. Thank you, Ben. And, and Jerry, you have some um, thoughts? I think that um, we are either at the tipping point or a turning point. And what we have seen is that uh, what we cannot do is allow a solution of one problem become the source of a problem for, to another. So by solving COVID, we end up creating more problems for the climate. So we cannot do that. And we've shown that it is possible to solve both at the same time. We can promote green jobs. We promote uh, activities that actually both reduce uh, emissions and at the same time uh, generate uh, economic activity. We can do the same for food and agriculture and climate change. And I think that is the opportunity that we have at this moment. So I think we need to look for those opportunities that will do both outcomes at the same time. Thank you, Jerry. I think we might be just out of time and ready to uh, thank our panel. Uh, thank you all for participating. Uh, again, this conversation is being taped as a live episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast, Global Dispatches, World News That Matters, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be able to access this conversation and many others. It is now my pleasure to introduce Christine Schneeberger, Deputy Head of Global Cooperation at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation for some concluding remarks. Uh, over to you, Christine Schneeberger. Thank you very much, Mark, and good afternoon, everyone. I have to say I have um, enjoyed very much today's um, discussion and I would, as a co-host, like to thank all the enthusiastic and brilliant panelists and, and the participants and also you, Mark, for the moderation. Um, let me start with um, what I would say are my main takeaways of today's event. Um, both the COP26 and the Food Systems Summit could produce mutually reinforcing action of the intersection between climate and food challenges. Although they are highly aligned in terms of their goals, they are not systematically feeding in each other in a way that reinforces their shared ambitions. The food systems approach requires to take into consideration not only the, the impact um, to climate change of food, but also how food contributes to climate change. I think the point on the, um, the revision of the NDCs, I won't mention it because it, uh, it has been said many times and also Peter mentioned it in the statistics at the very beginning. And thank you, Peter, for showing us those interesting statistics at the very beginning. Um, at the intersection between food systems transformation and climate action, a number of initiatives on climate risk reduction and management enable contributions to reduce risks on food systems that are compounded by climate change. And these initiatives do also protect livelihoods of the people that depend on them. 
And the initiatives outlined in, in the discussion today offer a very broad pool of knowledge and tools to couple climate action with food system transformation. And many of you have said it today. The main point is that we need a systematic change. We have also heard that um, private sector and women have an important role to play. But I would also like to, to mention that, that we need the youth and the youth and their enthusiasm, enthusiasm and their energy for systematic change. For example, in Switzerland, we just launched um, a, a global initiative, the One Million Youth Action Challenge, which tries to mobilize one million concrete actions by youth individuals or in groups um, um, on concrete climate actions by the end of 2020. Or, or our mission in Rome, and I was myself at the Food System Preparation Summit in Rome, they have launched an initiative called the Bites of Transformation, where they um, tried to mobilize um, youth from all countries of the world. And, and the initiative was even in, uh, invited to the G20 um, Summit in, in Italy in, in, in June, and that was very positive. I was surprised a bit that uh, the, the discussion's focus today was more like on the production side and not so much on the consumer side. And I think there is a, there is a lot of potential there which we, we definitely could address. And um, before I come to share some of uh, like two, three examples of the Swiss approach in all of this, I, I would like to still mention two, three things that I, I learned. I think it became clear from the di discussion that in order to move towards um, socially fair, politically inclusive, inclusive, as well as climate resilient development, we have to fundamentally change our attitude. We have to stop, stop unsustainable approaches and adapt our international cooperation models accordingly. Um, Public and private investments and development strategies need to become risk-informed and forward-looking with regards to climate change. Fossil fuel lock-in lock effects must be avoided. The around 800 million people living without electricity worldwide must gain access to green sources of power. We need investments in inclusive, climate-proof infrastructure with capacity development. Climate and biodiversity must be systematically considered, not, not only in agriculture, but in mobility or in industry development too. Th these are all points um, which really um, also show that we have to adapt, uh, adapt our international cooperation work. And humanitarian aid is another example. This is mainly still focused on delivering aid after disaster strikes. And um, what we need is to embrace climate change adaptation sincerely and transform our systems. And like Gernot said it in the very beginning too. Um, now, now that we can predict shocks um, such as extreme weather, we must adopt um, an, anti an anticipative approach. Because if we wait until the media shows images of affected people, we have failed our mandate to protect those people. And let me highlight also here a few of our Swiss efforts. And you know that Switzerland is really like not only in food system and climate change, but basically in all thematic areas where we work in. We try to, to really um, um, push for a transformative, a systematic change. 
So I would like to mention some examples. For example, we have been very engaged to what I already said in the Food System Summit, and that was very much with the goal to contribute to a more resilient and sustainable food systems, in particular through agroecology. This includes work on resource efficiency and resilience of natural systems towards clim climatic um, shocks, as well as increased social equity. We invest in prevention and climate risk-informed development. In Laos, for example, we support farmers with climate-smart approaches to both increase tea harvests and strengthen their resilience. Um, Agroecological um, transitions will require significant policy shifts with conducive and evidence-based programs. And the policy science dialogue is crucial. Switzerland is partnering with CGIR and the Transformative Partnership Platform to generate such scientific evidence that can feed decision makers in, in this direction. And we also support partners to work along all moments of crisis, before, during and after crisis. And, and since um, 2012, we support the macro and micro insurances initiatives on the African continent, like the African Risk Capacity, or R4, with the World Food Programme, also mentioned by Peter earlier. They contribute to countries' risk management and capacities and foster resilience with local solutions through a balance, balanced yet decisive engagement with the private sector. And um, we also invest in better observation, analytics, and early warning systems Many of you have mentioned them today, so that communities, regulators, producers and consumers integrate climate services in their daily decision making processes. An example in the early warning systems we support against glacial lake outbursts and floods in the Himalayas of India. So I would like to come to a conclusion and I would like to do that um, with, the, with a call really that in all countries, of the world, um, an inclusive whole of society effort is needed. That includes not only scientists and governments and international organizations, but very much also the private sector, individual consumers, civil society, labor unions, academia and students, etc. A decentralization and putting communities in the driving seat, especially also women, is of utmost importance. And in order to achieve the, the Agenda 2030, the Paris Agreement and the Sendai framework, we have to show a much stronger engagement, recognize our common interests, effectively align our policies, stop inventing new and new buzzwords, but rather speak with one common language. And it's now really up to us to walk the talk and to build on the past pioneer achievements and make climate action anticipatory actions and food system transformation work um, of the people, by the people and for the people. Thank you. Back to you, Mark. Uh, well, thank you all. And that concludes our uh, panel discussion and presentation today. Goodbye. All right. Thank you all for listening to this special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR. We'll see you next time. Bye.